Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. The first time I went for a walk in the park, it was with Anna Subri, who'd just walked out of the Tory party. The second time I went for a walk with Ian Austin, who'd just walked out of the Labour Party. Today I go for a walk in the park in the sunshine with Sam Coates, who this week walks out of The Times after almost two decades working for the paper. Hello, Sam. Hello. <laughs> so it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day in St James's Park. Uh, so, Sam, you joined the Times in the year 2000. Seems like a long time ago. Explain how that happened. Well, I was uh, lucky enough to be on their graduate training scheme. I, all I'd wanted to do all the way through university was become a journalist. Uh, so I was lucky enough to walk out uh, and walk into the Times Graduate Training Scheme, where almost immediately I knew that I wanted to work in politics. Um, it took me three or four years to get there. 2005 was the, uh, was the year I moved to Westminster, uh, but I pretty much from the off knew that it was Westminster journalism for the Times that I wanted to do. And you've been in Westminster ever since, apart from a small foray over into banking. Did your time in banking only reconfirm how much you wanted to be in Westminster? Well, not really. I, nobody ever believes me when I say this, but I really enjoyed my time covering <laughs> the city, covering big companies, covering the Bank of England, covering the Treasury, and covering the way that these massive lobbying institutions, which are banks, uh, operate. And oddly enough, politics is very serious when it comes to the banking industry. In 2012, when I did it, in fact, the financial se- uh, sector was sort of teetering on the edge, and the issues couldn't be bigger. And seeing politics through an entirely new prism was rather eye-opening. So no, um, nobody will ever believe me, but I (laughs) didn't regret it for a second. Okay, okay. No, I don't believe you because you've become a creature of Westminster. And we should say that you're going to Sky News to be their deputy political editor. It's not like you're leaving Westminster, you're just leaving the... um, Nor am I dead. People talk talk about the process of leaving (laughs) after two days as if you're going to die. I'm not. I'm very much still alive. Well, you'll uh, (laughs) you'll be dead to us. Um... <laughs> but no, you are leaving the uh, tumble-down porter cabin uh, that is the the Times uh, office on the roof of Parliament. So let's just talk through what of the things. Decade and a half in Westminster is a long time. What what do you think has changed? I remember very starkly walking into the lobby, as it's called, which is the bit of the Houses of Parliament which journalists sit in 
in order to be able to uh, report. There's a suite of offices on the top floor of the main building of the House, House of Commons, uh, where journalists all congregate, gather and type their copy. And the first thing that struck me when I walked in back all those years ago was just how cliquey and to a certain extent unfriendly it was. I remember the biggest change it feels between then and now is just how less pervasive football was compared to then. <laughs> now, now that might sound like a silly no, observation. No, I totally but, agree. But politics revolved around clumps of men with pints in their hand talking 80% football and then interspersing it with a little bit of politics, a little bit of leaking. That, that was the culture of the end of Blair, start of Brown years. You had great big figures like Damien McBride and many of Blair's spinners um, for whom it would be completely typical for conversations to be three quarters about a pig's bladder being kicked around a, 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 a sort of a grassy knoll. I've never been a fan of sport ever since it decided it wasn't a fan of me when I was a kid. And it made no sense to me. And West, Westminster in politics is a baffling, confusing world. And it almost made itself seem more deliberately unfriendly by having this other code layered on top of it which we weren't really meant to meant to crack because the people who were the bosses at the time wanted to stay unchallenged and by making sure that they had their own secret signals their own codes their own language people who didn't like football people who weren't men of a certain type couldn't really take part in meant that you know it just protected the status quo. Now, I'm very pleased that actually things have changed dramatically since then. There are far fewer people who are obsessed by football. There are far more people who, who, who sort of are just more relaxed about sport in general and don't use it as a sort of important, uh, important glue with which to hold together the political journalist conversation. No, I totally agree with you. Because I think I joined the lobby in 2005. Well, I started working in Parliament in 2005 as well, and it was really weird. Really, I, I remember going on my first day working for PA, going to what was the press bar. In fact, with Jeremy Brown because he was an M he was the only MP that I really knew, and he introduced me to a load of journalists who were really quite unfriendly and standoffish. And because I was working for PA, not for a newspaper, I probably wasn't worth speaking to. And, I mean, I remember the first two or so months scurrying in to the office and then scurrying out again without really talking to anybody else people on other newspapers or anything I just I found them all incredibly intimidating and I found there no no ladder with in which to join in what was going on and I just sort of sat and did and did my thing which is a long way round of saying to everybody who wants to work in political journalism all those who are intrigued first of all it's got better but secondly if you think it's a bit weird, that's because it is. It is and you do weird. have to just sort of work at it a bit. But it does sort of come around in the end. And so uh, it's probably not changed. I think the, the lobby's definitely younger. There were a lot of what I would call grandees in the lobby when I first started. We have lots of female political editors today. There were more today. female There were, there were so. Ellen, Eleanor Goodman was a, was a sort of trailblazer. But now you've got Laura Koonsberg, obviously, Beth Rigby at Sky, Pippa Creer at The Mirror, uh, Heather Stewart at The Guardian. So uh, I, I think the, the, the balance has, has shifted, not as much as it should do. It's still a very challenging place for all working parents to work. But um, but 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 you're seeing some of the sort of improvements that you would that you would that you would hope as kind of we hit 2019. Yeah, we've reached about sort of 1995 in the real world <laughs> uh, in terms of the lobby. Four years after the porter cabin in which the Times works ought to have been demolished. And so the the hours. Part of the reason why there aren't more women working, particularly working mothers, in the lobby is because the hours can be pretty grim and unpredictable. And you're absolutely right. Working parents in general, it's not a, if you're if you're a fan of seeing your children, it's not always the best 
job to have. And the past two or three years in particular have been pretty grueling for that. I, I often think that the day I drove away from my brother's wedding across Scotland to go to the start of a couple of weeks out for the Scottish referendum campaign was the, was the moment that politics in this country sort of went mad and it's never been able to get back in a box since that day. Okay, so what else has changed? What, what, else are you, what else are your learnings from being in the lobby for, for so long? So one of the biggest things that's... Corrupting is a strong word. It's certainly changing politics in all sorts of fascinating ways. Is the screenshot. Literally that funny little <laughs> double button that you press on your iPhone when you press the home key and the power key together and it takes a little photograph of whatever's on your screen. This is having a transformative effect. Why? Well, because so much communication in Westminster, be it between journalists and MPs or between MPs themselves or between government ministers themselves, is now done digitally on, play, on things like WhatsApp, for instance, which is all pervasive in Westminster. But the problem with WhatsApp is that it's awfully easy to leak. And I am delighted to be, always delighted to be, on an ongoing basis to anyone who's listening, a recipient of images of WhatsApp messages between <laughs> two or more other people. And politics is conducted these days on multiple WhatsApp groups. But the danger for everybody is it takes just one person to leak contents to a journalist. And the politics of WhatsApp groups is essentially the politics of is essentially a process of politics becoming more binary. If you are a Brexiteer in the ERG group, for instance, you want to pledge uh, support for the main aims and goals of that group. Uh, you can feel pressured into doing that. You become uh, a greater advocate for sometimes more extreme positions than you otherwise would have done. Nuance struggles in today's WhatsApp meet, uh, culture. Even to the point that if you're a Tory MP in one of those WhatsApp groups and you go on the telly, uh, maybe on Sky News or Politics Live or whatever, if you don't toe the line and you're not seen as being sufficiently strong enough, you get a pile on. A load of other Tory MPs pile on and say, oh, I didn't, you know, you should have said this, you should have said that. Absolutely. And then the next thing that happened is that somebody might leak the, the pile on at the MP that wasn't being sufficiently robust or, or was a bit too toadying to Theresa May. All of those things now happen. And, it, and, and that contributes to a reduction in trust amongst MPs. It's a pretty grisly atmosphere out there in Westminster. And I, and I think let's pinpoint the, the, the screenshot as one of those reasons why. Now, I'm going to speak in defence of the screenshot uh, because of the screenshot uh, taken at the moment after Boris Johnson pulled out of the Tory, <laughs> the Tory leadership in 2016. And Norman Smith on the BBC was live on air and you emerged from uh, the press conference pulling in a face which I think we would describe as a gog, um, which has sort of come to sort of capture the... Both, both the mood then, but lots of moments since. <laughs> uh, yes, that was a moment that went viral. Um, did I, you I, know the camera was there? <sighs> yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Of course I did. I've had to pretend for years that's not true. But in truth, I'm just a bit of a show off. There, there we are. Wow, that's, that is a, that's the exclusive everybody wanted. Sam Coates admitting he's a bit of a show off. But that takes you to another big change, uh, which is Twitter. Now regular listeners to the Redbox podcast, readers of the email, readers of the Times will know that Twitter now is regularly lambasted as a force for bad. People get a lot of abuse, people get carried away, particularly after one o'clock in the evening. But also, I think Twitter has been an enormous 
force for good when it comes to politics because it allows far greater numbers of people to register their opinion, register their position, register their objection. And the story of politics is much clearer for those of us who are trying to tell it, much more comprehensively. Issues that otherwise wouldn't come to the fore now bubble up within seconds. And that is a consequence of micro social media. Um, and uh, in the old days, when I started, if the then political editor Philip Webster wanted to find out what MPs thought, he could go to the lobby and would be at the mercy of those who were there, or he could just literally phone round on his landline, you know, three or four people. And that would be the extent of the views that he was able to seek. But because of Twitter, dozens and dozens of MPs register what they think about something instantly. You can't stop them. They're never off the bloody thing. Um, and that allows us to build a much more comprehensive picture. So, so we understand our politics quite a lot more. We might not like what we see. People might um, uh, be more objectionable. But we do have a greater picture at greater speed. Uh, which allows us to tell reader a more comprehensive picture than ever before. And that, that, I think, is a pretty good thing. And it also sometimes exposes MPs who say and do stupid things, and it, you know, it, it gives us an insight into their minds. Um, it's also, it can also be funny. I mean, the, the, one of the big differences about being a political journalist now to maybe a decade ago was you just sort of wrote down what people said and you put it in the paper, and it was all quite serious. If you were, if you were a reporter... It was all quite serious. Whereas now you can have a, you know, everyone has got a platform, and and basically, basically, what I'm saying is, I spend my whole day on Twitter making jokes. Yeah, and um, but look, I think everybody, be they journalist or be they MP, is trying to work out ways of engaging people uh, more. And frankly, the people with a bit of wit about them, a bit of spark about them, a bit of kind of nuance, who say interesting stuff, are just more likely to be listened to. It's a it's a brutal truth. It's always been true, but we see it much more clearly. And those MPs who are dullard, who don't dare poke their head above the parapet, who just really struggle to and strain to sort of make a mark or leave a mark, there's no excuse now because it's not like you don't, you, you always, 24 hours, seven days a week, uh, have access to the ability to, to say something, to tickle opinion, get people on side and to generally just uh, inform, entertain and, 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 and lead the world. Okay, so what else? What else? What, are you, what else have you taken away from the Times? So the other, one of the other changes is, you know, it's an understatement to say that the last decade or so have seen turmoil. But um, uh, if you look back, if you turn back the clock about ten years, um, there was a great, a, a considerable degree more reverence towards, as it were, the establishment, towards the reputation of MPs. And then along came the expenses scandal. And I have to say that generally the Gordon Brown years weren't wonderful for trust. They had high points and low points in terms of politics, but they weren't great for the relationship between MPs and politicians, with the expenses scandal being at, a, at the heart of it. And, and over the last, I don't know, 10 years, there have been efforts to improve the reputation of MPs, hold MPs better to account, make them more transparent, make, make the process of politics more understandable. But I just worry that quite a lot of these, or some of these, are having a counterproductive effect. I think one of the things that we've ended up doing is that we've got to now a, a sort of neuralgia, we're neurotic about being seen to be too soft on MPs. One of the things that people, lessons that people took away from the expenses scandal was that somehow we, journalists, political journalists, the lobby had, had, had let them get away with it for years and we, we seem to constantly be on our guard to never let that happen again and that's absolutely right but 
the way that manifests itself is we're endlessly picking on the small things, on the easily understood things. It's the five pound claims. It's the MP who who bought some biros and put it on expenses. It's the MPs who put a first class train ticket rather than a standard class train ticket on expenses. It's the type of flat that they that they have it that they have in London. Not enormous things, you know, rightly holding MPs to account. But what we don't do quite as well as we should do is scrutinise with the excitement and the enthusiasm, partly because it's harder to empathise over, with the big things that go wrong, the government contracts that go wrong, the amount of spending, wasteful spending, on all sorts of public-private um, uh, enterprises that, that, that exist. We don't yet and haven't really worked out or managed to, to drum up sustained enthusiasm on the more difficult, more techie things that actually matter far more than whether 50p here or there at the lower end of the spectrum went the wrong way. And in fact, almost any National Audit Office report into some doomed government project would involve the loss of more money than anything that was paid back during the expenses scandal. No. I mean, there is a sort of purity with which we require our politicians to behave, yet the decisions that they enact can be all over the place and draw not nearly <laughs> the same level of comment as, uh, as a minor indiscretion of the sort that it's much more easily to empathise for. Now, that's a comment on what readers are interested in, what news desks are interested in, what we as humans are interested in, because a lot of this stuff is not straightforward. But I think we can occasionally allow the silly small to eclipse the big and important. Do you think MPs have got worse? Just the quality, the calibre of people who are politicians today? Look, I can't objectively measure cohort by cohort by cohort, but one of the really striking things through Brexit is just, is not how the extremes um, jump and try and shape the debate. How so many people who do not consider themselves part of the extremes have just wanted to tuck themselves away, hide under the duvet, close the cupboard door and and crawl into a corner. I think if there was something I was depressed about, about the state of politics, it's about how few of our elected representatives really, really get stuck in on national issues and put their head above a parapet, read up on it, explain, fight, communicate, thinking instead that maybe if they just let some other people sort it out, it might just go away. And that's how we've ended up with a national debate conducted almost entirely between Andrew Bridgen and Andrew Adonis. Yes, uh, Sky News, three o'clock, tune in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Only joking. But I think that um, there has been this process of polarisation and and we're trying actively to drag more centre voices from both parties uh, out into the fore to talk about politics as they see it. But it's hard. As a general rule, British politicians don't particularly like engaging. They fear the downside rather than the benefit of engagement. Yet the upside, just look at people like Jacob Rees-Mogg or Andrew Bridgen or even a sort of centre-ground MP like Tom Tugendhat. They have all got the profile that they've got by being willing to pick up the phone to journalists. And they've made a mark by doing that. And that's, um, uh, and that's because they've had a bit more... Uh, balls than um, perhaps many of their uh, many of their many of their colleagues who prefer to stay silent. So if you want basically if you want to if you want to make a mark, you've got to get involved. I don't know why more of them don't. And phone you and I. That's the main thing. Just yes. Phone you and I. Oh seven eight. <laughs> <laughs> right, go on then. What's your fifth thing that you've taken away from uh, your time at the Times? I don't want this to be seen as the kind of in praise of the Red Box podcast because it's definitely not that. Um, when I began thirteen years ago or so. You told political stories, the nation's political story, in one way, using news stories that adhered to a very particular format 
with the most important thing or the newest revelation at the top and then uh, almost like a pyramid combing down with the more important stuff underneath. Everything had to be told in a particular way and there was really not much room for explaining the political story in any other way in newspapers. Fast forward and there has been an explosion in different types of plat platforms, different methods of communication uh, in how we tell what's going on. And it's absolutely revelatory. And I think it's engaged far more members of the public than just newspaper articles in the traditional format ever did. So you've got podcasts like this, which I just think engage far more people than quite a lot of dense political copy of the sort that I've been writing for years. You've got Twitter, which... Um, is properly democratic. Anybody can log on and think and see what their elective re representative says. Blogs were the thing that really broke the mould. I remember people... In fact, you had a blog. I had it was a... called... Red Box. It was called Red Box. And I still am delighted to say that I've been charging you for the use of the copyrighted <laughs> name. And at the end of this podcast, there will be a bill for several hundred thousand pounds. Pioneers you like... didn't have that many readers on your blog. <laughs> but there were pioneers, even like Ian Dale. And what they would do on their blogs is that they, would, they broke the monopoly of the lobby. All of a sudden, for years and years, political journalists had said what they they'd done reshuffle predictions, they'd made uh, they'd made, pr made pronouncements about people's future, and all of a sudden, anybody could get stuck in on the internet. And they, I remember it, just all of a sudden, they started judging what we wrote, picking apart what we wrote, <laughs> pointing out the factual errors of what we wrote, and it did sort of. That was the first thing that shook the political journalism world, and it meant that you couldn't. Not that you should, um, but it happened occasionally. Write complete trite week after week, as some people did like 20 years ago. It became impossible because the weight of comment that you would get that was actually impossible to exist before the internet started opening up these other routes, um, all of a sudden you felt your feet held to the fire if you wrote something that a lot of people judged not quite right. Now, that in itself has its own dangers. It reinforces the conventional wisdom sometimes. But frankly, the idea that journalists shouldn't you know, be held accountable like everybody else, and there shouldn't be lots of different ways of telling pol political stories. Um, well, frankly, both things are incredibly good. And that means that today the power of a red box podcast can actually outweigh a down page story in the Times on page 17. And, you know, that's no bad thing. Now, talking of which, well, we both know of people who've worked in various bits of government, including in number 10, who listen to the podcast and quite often get quite cross when. Uh We've said things on the podcast. Other people who've been on say that they've upset potential leadership contenders because of things that they've said, because people do, people do listen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. If you enjoy listening to Times journalists talking about politics but would like to do it while it's sea, you're in luck. Imagine me and Danny Finkelstein, plus Prue Leith, Pam Ayres, Armando Iannucci and Alan Johnson on a cruise ship. No, it's not a brand new reality TV show, but the brilliant literary festival at Sea 2020 on the Queen Mary 2. For details of this trip, organised by Times expert traveller and to book your place on board, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash litfest2020 and quote the word Times when booking to get access to exclusive Times events. We've a lovely walk. We've been all the way around St James's Park. Uh, we're just coming up around the back of uh, Downing Street. This is the bit where the bullet goes in the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I think if there's one thing that we could be pretty sure is that Theresa May will miss her target. Now, so you, you started under Blair, then Brown, then Cameron, then May. Who's been the best and worst Prime Ministers in that time? They've all been pretty bad as far as my world's been concerned. Look, as, as a deputy political editor, it's kind of never been my job to be particularly close to any prime minister or leader of the opposition. And I think it's fair to say I've had a scratchy existence with all of them. The moment that a leader gets into number 10, uh, they, they find that communication, on the one hand, they have the power of the pulpit of number 10. And on the other hand... Um, uh, all of the spin docs are desperately trying to ensure glowing, um, uh, glowing coverage of the sort that, frankly, if you're Prime Minister, some journalists are prepared to offer. Um, it's, that's never the job of a deputy political editor. So pretty much through all of them, the relationships have been quite scratchy. Um, but that's probably how it has to be. Which regime was the most fun in your job? Because you like to cause trouble. Uh, we've got a trampoline in our office which you bounce on when you've got a particularly silly story or a story which is going to wind up someone you think needs to be wound up. So I'm not, I don't think it's been there right from the beginning, but, but which, which, which regime gave you the most trampoline time? It doesn't work like that. It, it, it has a pattern to it, but it's a different pattern. The beginning of any regime is a nightmare. They think I'm the enemy. Everyone else is being nice to them and I'm not and they can't work out why. Then we settle down into a pattern for most of it. And then the the final phase of any administration is the most fun as basically anarchy reigns, um, which is quite frankly the kind of environment in which some of us thrive. And that's very much where we are right now. That There are no rules. Anyone can speak to anyone. The sort of iron-like grip that even Theresa May tried to exert at the beginning of the regime is, is completely gone. It's a free-for. It is. I mean, if you had emotion, you would say in some senses it's sad that Theresa May's entire point for being has uh, disappeared. <laughs> well, no, no. She spent two, two and a half years working towards a Brexit deal. That's failed. 38% of the Conservative membership, which are effectively like her extended family, think she's been a, quote, terrible Prime Minister, according to our survey. On Thursday, she'll lose her main piece of Brexit legislation in a couple of weeks. Uh, she'll lose the piece for a by-election. And she come possibly fourth or fifth in the European uh, elections on single figures. If I had any emotions in my body, I might feel sorry for her. But, dear listener, I don't. 
so what's been your best story? What do you look back on and think that was a lot of fun or a great scoop or the one that changed the direction of something? I've done a lot of stuff that listeners might consider you know, a bit more serious and weighty, but, but the moments of uh, adrenaline-filled shock uh, are, I suppose, in retrospect, the most fun, even if you don't enjoy them at the time. Uh, and two of them stand out. Uh, the first was the moment where a senior Cameron operative came up to a table of lobby hacks one evening and uh, over the course of a conversation declared that the Tory grassroots were a little bit like swivel-eyed loons. Listeners of the podcast who listened to uh, the last episode, James Kirkup gave his account of exactly this, but obviously stuck to the uh, cast iron board and didn't name who the source was. Absolutely, and James Kirkup was completely right to do that. And that episode was notable because I have never before or since encountered the degree of shouting and fury and the entire machinery of state bearing down on you uh, uh, than uh, we did, the three of us did, when those three words, swivel-eyed loon, uh, appeared in various national publications. It was truly epic, but standing up for his reporter, as John Witherow, the editor of The Times, did that day, is one of the reasons why he is truly a fine editor. Other editors might not resist uh, shouting and the pressure uh, and the leaning on by Downing Street, uh, but the editor of the Times absolutely did that day. The other moment of epic meltdown was at Gordon Brown's first trip uh, to the United States, where he was there to reset his relationship <laughs> with George Bush. He uh, went over there, had a few stern words, looked a bit more frosty than his predecessor Tony Blair. Job done. Everyone else got on the plane home and had a few glasses of champagne and went to sleep. I, however, didn't. And uh, while everyone was dozing, wandered to the back of the plane and saw this sparkly box twinkling on one of the seats and thought, a bit like a magpie, oh, go on, why not? Uh, lifted the lid off, there were no professional seals, opened up the tissue paper, opened up the carpet bag, and there, inside, was a Gordon Brown bomber jacket <laughs> with the insignia of uh, Camp David and the Right Honourable Gordon Brown <laughs> on it. And what I did was I laid it out in front, got a couple of lobby hacks, including Ben Brogan and Nick Robinson, I hope they don't mind me naming them now, to stand guard on the various aisles of the plane as I did a photo shoot. And those pictures appeared in the Times and a couple of other publications the next day. And what, the you wearing it? Not of me wearing oh, it, but just of it lying on the seat. And the shouting was epic. Accusations of discourtesy, and that was just from other lobby hacks, and general frostiness for weeks from Number 10, who at that point, Gordon Brown was a new Prime Minister, and they were a bit in their pomp. But you know what? It was a bit of fun. It told you a lot about the relationship between Gordon Brown and George Bush, that he wanted to hide this item that George Bush had given in an act of friendship. Ultimately, he had a perfectly standard relationship uh, between the US, with the US president, uh, including those difficult years to connected to the uh, final years of the Iraq war. And Britain and the US rubbed along as it always does. That is quite the story. And in fact, you talking about fashion and items of clothing it brings me probably to my, my, my last question. On a previous podcast, it, the high, it, it, one of the many what the hell is going on specials that we've done in the past year or so, uh, you declared that the hole in your trousers was the best guide to the scale of the political crisis we were in. But you're off to telly. You're going to have to get some new clothes and we'll no longer have your 
your news gussets to keep us abreast of what is going on. Now, the question that whenever I, I told people I was going to do this podcast, the question people kept on saying, you've got to ask me about, are you going to get a new wardrobe? Because you're not known for your sartorial elegance around Westminster. I'm obviously not at liberty to divulge any details of the new job, but say, just say, this week I'd had a 45-minute consultation with somebody who does style for a certain TV station, and say they had indeed promised to get me a new wardrobe, and say they'd... They'd, they'd started asking me personal questions about my weight and where I put it on and started looking at me funny to see whether I was telling the truth. And say they thought that they had a, a myriad of sartorial solutions for me. Say all of that had happened, you and the Red Box listeners will be the last ones to know. Sam Coates, it's been an absolute pleasure. You'll be much missed in our room. And of course, we look forward to uh, seeing your face uh, on mute televisions in gyms and coffee shops across Westminster. Sam Coates, thanks very much. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 